Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Football Funders podcast, episode 24. No Pete this week, so it's just myself, Dan, and of course, Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Hello, mate. How are you doing? All right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm surviving, mate. I'm surviving. It's been one of those weeks, isn't it? It's just been nobody <laughs> who's in a position of authority can make a correct decision at all. I'm not even going to get started on the Formula One because this is a football podcast. <laughs> if I get started on the Formula One, I'm gonna, my head's going to go again. But, I mean, football tried to outdo them by screwing up the Champions League draw. So, do you want to start with that, the incompetence that is UEFA? Yeah, so I, I missed this. I was working and people at work were kind of informing me, but obviously we were shooting in and out of breaks and stuff. There's about three or four of us at football. Am I right in thinking that the way they did the draw two people in the same group would have ended up together, or is that correct? Basically what happened is they did the draw. Man United got drawn with Villarreal, which shouldn't have happened because you're not supposed to play a team in the first round of the knockout stages that you've already played in the, the league stage. So because obviously Man United played Villarreal, they had to redo that part. But then the problem was that they didn't put the Man United ball back in the bag. So when the draw came out the next time, it was cocked up. So they then basically had to go away and redo the entire draw again at three o'clock, which resulted in, I think, every single tie being redone, except for Chelsea, who I think pulled Lille twice, if I remember rightly. Yeah, that's a very good game. So I quite like the, the round of games. I really interested. So we'll run through them and just we'll do like a little prediction. Just say who's going to go through, I think, maybe point out anything interesting. So Salzburg and Bayern, screams are spanking. And especially the second leg will be in Bayern. So that's, I think we safely put Bayern through as possible winners. Benfica, Ajax, I'm going to put my head on the line and say I expect Ajax to win that quite comfortably. The way they've dealt with teams in the uh, the group stage, I'd be shocked if they don't make Benfica. Obviously, we touched on Benfica last week and their managerial uh, shithousery. So I wouldn't be surprised if Ajax are, uh, are able to walk past Benfica. Ajax have been in really good form this season, both in the Champions League and in the Eredivisie, so I'm not surprised. Have we checked the tracker today to see if he's made it all the way home yet? I haven't. Uh, I can check live. Um, while we're on the uh, Ajax, though, their lean goal score in the Champions League across the whole Champions League so far, lean goal score is Sebastian Haller. Yes, the former guy West who couldn't hit a cow's ass with a banjo at West Ham. But maybe that says more about what West Ham were doing than what Sebastian Haller was doing. And I think here between him and Dusan Tadic, they're making Premier League look awful, aren't they? Because they're two managers that everyone was entirely, well, what's the right term? No one really thought they were superb players at either club, although I quite like Tadic. Turns out that they're amazing for Ajax. Tadic wasn't too bad for Southampton. He was just very, very inconsistent. One week he could be absolutely fantastic and the next week he could be completely absent from a sort of involvement on the football pitch. So Haller was, is a completely different kettle of fish because he came over to West Ham. I think he started okay for a couple of games and then tried to do his best Joel Linton impression and promptly got <laughs> sold to Ajax. And now he's knocking them in and he's, I think he's, has he scored more goals quicker than Erling Haaland in the Champions League, I think. I mean, yeah, like his he's, first he's, six games he's scored in it's all. It's ridiculous. I think he might be in double figures. It's absolutely bananas, but fair play to him for uh, doing that. I do expect on, Ajax to come through. On the Jorge Jesus tracker, 
comfortably into Brazil now, closing in on his homeland and back to Flamengo. So congratulations, Benfica fans. He's almost home. Tune in uh, the next, next week, tire, people. Yeah, he might even be there next week. The next tie, this is a real interesting game for me because I think it's two sides who I don't think if you watch Spanish football, you won't be sure where they are. Atletico Madrid and Manchester United. For me, it always depends which Atletico turn up. They've not been great this year. There's a lot of draws in their um, start to the campaign. And United, it completely depends which one United decide to turn up. In my opinion, that one gets sorted by the result at Old Trafford with United going through. I can't call this one either way because like you've just said, Man United are going through a change. The formations change. They're keeping clean sheets. But if you've actually seen the games, it's a miracle how they've kept clean sheets. There's a false narrative going on here. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, they're, they're under this new guy. They're going to press. They're going to press. They're going to press. They ain't going to have time to learn to press because this is the Premier League. We play every two or three days. So that's not going to happen. He's just basically trying to get them through the season. He's, he's come out with this new 4-2-2. Two, two, Everyone just starts in the middle and then goes wherever they feel like, basically. But like you said, it's very much a case of Atletico because last year, they won the Spanish League last year, I think. Yes, comfortably. Quite comfortably. And Mm. now they've crapped the bed. This year, they're draw draw specialists this year. That one, I could reckon it could be... I don't know if it'll be at Old Trafford, but I think that's like going to be decided by one single goal. I, I will lean United, I think. Might be home bias. I think United, Old Trafford in the second leg might do them well. The next game is this game again, very interesting to watch. I think it, I should think Liverpool should win, but they have Inter Milan. The first leg's at the San Siro and the second leg is at Anfield. Uh, this could be a very good game. Uh, I do fancy Liverpool, though, to be victorious. It's going to be a very, very good game, I think. I'm a big fan of Lotaro Martinez. So it's going to be interesting to watch him. But like you, I do think just the way Liverpool play, they're, very, they're irrepressible. They're very different to, to Manchester City. Manchester City will pass you and work you to death. Liverpool won't bother. They'll just cut straight through you. They don't care. Liverpool are my tip to win the Champions League this year. So I do expect them to get past Inter Milan. I don't think they'll be comfortable, though. I watched Inter Milan play uh, Madrid in the Champions League, the last group game the other weekend. It was... Um... I don't know what the right word is. Inter Milan had a lot of the chances, but they just can't defend. They just look bad defensively. And when you're coming up against Salah and Mane and Jota slash Firmino, good luck. <laughs> you can score goals with Martinez and Dzeko and have the creative midfield with Barella and Brozovic. But I'm not sure their defence can cope with uh, Liverpool's strength. So the next one is uh, Man City and Sporting Lisbon. Again, job done by Man City. This is another spanking. They've just done Leeds 7-0. I can see this being another spanking. Don't get me wrong. Sporting are a good side. They've got fantastic young players. They're one of those clubs that seems to produce very good young players and decent players. I mean, it was Andre Silva, I think, came over to Leicester. Didn't have a good time, but he was a hell of a, a central midfielder. Sporting are uh, currently undefeated in the... I don't know what their league's called. Is it Liga BOS or something? I have the, no uh... idea. But yeah, they've got Sebastian Quartes. Kind of... No? Yeah, that's, that's it. Nos. Uh, Sebastian Quartes, former Liverpool defender, is their leader. Nuno Santos and Nunes and Pedro Garcia. They've got, again, as you said, this young core that seems to be doing them really good at the minute. But I think Man City will be too strong. The same goes for Chelsea with um, Lille. Lille, obviously, did they win? I'm right by saying they won the French League last year, Lille, right? Yes, I think so. But this season they are 
I think if I look correctly the other day, they're banging mid-table with more losses than wins and a lot of draws. So Chelsea should be victorious. Chelsea look a bit wobbly at the minute in the league, but Champions League, they've looked okay. And, and Lille probably don't have it what it takes to beat Chelsea, even though the because as you said, at home at Stamford Bridge, it could be a spanking. And then France, Chelsea would just have to do a professional job, in my opinion. I think if Lille had been in any kind of form, I think there might have been a risk. Because like you said, give Chelsea credit where credit's due. They've had some injuries and they've ground out results really well, which is what championship winning sides do. But I think if Lille were in any kind of form, it might have been a bit more of a challenge than Chelsea would realise. But Lille have been so poor this season. The, to be honest, the most of France has from, from what I've seen and from what I've read. Uh, it looks, if you look at it on paper, it looks like Paris Saint-Germain are walking away with it. But the reality is the teams around them... There's just, just no one to fight them. Well, no. Last year, there were several teams giving them a right good going. And like you said, Lille won the title. But this year, everyone just seems to have fallen. Uh, so Paris Saint-Germain just look amazing, even though they're not actually that great. So the next game is Villarreal and Juventus. This is a game that Villarreal seemed to have no form in Spanish football for over the last two, three years. But going to Europe and, and have a change of mentality against a Juventus side that aren't as strong as they have been in recent years. I think the first leg probably is very... It's in Villarreal, the first leg. I think that's going to be important. I do think Juventus go through. However, I don't think it's going to be easy. And this could be a game where I think if there's going to be an upset, this is where the upset is. For me personally, I think Villarreal go through. They're one of those sides that, like you said, they just seem to turn it on in Europe. They've done it in the Champions League. They've done it in the UEFA Cup or whatever it's called now. Is it the Europa League now? Europa League, yeah. So when it comes to Europe, they seem to really turn it on. Juventus are nowhere near the side that, that they used to be. They've gone through these mad few years of just basically signing as many midfielders as they can and then trying to ship them all back out again because they've run out of money and they're, they're massively in debt. And they've just, I think they've just had someone invest to, to cover their rear ends uh, because of the pandemic. And yeah, it's just a chaos. I mean, I don't even know who plays up, up front for them because it used to be Dybala and Ronaldo. Dybala and Morata. Oh God, they've gone and signed Alvaro Morata again. Jesus I can see Villarreal. I think they're a better team overall, not necessarily on terms of talent, but as a unit. We've seen how good they've been in the Champions League and what they've done to Man United predominantly over the last few years. So my money's on Villarreal for that one. And then the last game, Paris-Real Madrid. Now, I'm going to put myself on the line again, like it was an early result. I think Real Madrid win this. I don't really like PSG. I think they're overhyped because of the players' reputation that they've got. They don't seem to work great together in Europe. So I'll give this to Real Madrid. Although Real Madrid themselves have had a, a wobbly Champions League campaign, I think they should have the beating of PSG. This one I can't call. This is another one that I can't call because if all the Paris Saint-Germain players turn up and play to their full potential, this is a whooping. But they're not playing to their potential and that team is massively lopsided. I, know, I think it's Neymar who's currently out injured has uh, allowed Angel Di Maria to come in and it's given them a bit more balance. Real Madrid have done very well. Ancelotti's really made them gel. I know they've got Vinicius Jr. on fire at the moment. I'm going to yeah. give it to Paris Saint-Germain just. We'll agree to disagree on that one. As I've said, I think Real Madrid win. 
talk about PSG for me stinks as a side that have all the talent, everyone will build up and they'll get horrendously knocked out and look awful. And I will look forward to that because I like looking at people foul that shouldn't do. So <laughs> we'll move on to staying on uh, the subject of some big teams. We'll go on to uh, the Premier League. Yep. Because we're just about, we're a few games away by the end of the week with the end of tonight's games. I think, actually, no, I think Tottenham's game tonight might have been cancelled, but you, you people, you're listening, you'll know more than me because the game would have either happened or wouldn't have. So we'll talk about kind of the review, how the Premier League's gone so far. No shocks at the top, Man City, Liverpool and Chelsea. We kind of predicted them as the, the runaway three. I can't remember who you predicted to win the title in the end, was it? But Man City at the minute have the hold. Yeah, I think it was Man City, I think I predicted to win. It was even Man City or Liverpool, because I know Pete went for Chelsea. Me too. Uh, and they're up there. It, it's certainly interesting. There are a couple of surprises. I predicted trouble at Wolverhampton Wanderers, and they started really badly, and it looked like I'd called it. And then, lo and behold, we're basically halfway through the season, one more game. And they would have played 18, which is about half of the season. And they're up in eighth. They started poorly, but they've got it together and they're, they're back on track to the sort of side that they were. West Ham have done basically what we expected them to do. We expected them to be up there or thereabouts. They seem to have replaced Leicester, who've had a bit of a, a nightmare start because basically they started the season without their entire back line. And they still have. Yeah. They're and trying to stick their side back together as much as possible and with COVID being the way it is now and for those who aren't aware who listen abroad we've had a new variant hit the UK and it's highly potent and it's sweeping through the Premier League right now just as it is in everyday society and players are being tested positive left right and centre Man United's last two games have been postponed because Man United have got 13 confirmed cases uh, amongst players and staff. So there might be a few more postponements coming. But who's caught your eye overall? It's boring to say West Ham, but I think it is West Ham. I think we knew that they had the potential to be, you know, to be up there. We discussed it, you know, as a team that should still be in European conversation. But for me, that, the fact that they've been able to do it and consistently, our big thing was, can Antonio come back and do it again? He's been able to. Another big one for me, kind of the two big ones in the top half of the table, is Arsenal. We, just over a month ago, were saying that this Arsenal team, they're finished. They'll be lucky to finish eighth, seventh. And they're in fourth. I do think that they're com- they have this thing where they're great against a lot of sides, but as soon as they play a fellow big side, they get creamed. So I think they're, they are in that fourth to eighth bracket. But I think they've definitely improved in the last month. The battle between, I'd say, fourth for Arsenal and eighth in Wolves is five points. And I think those teams, I know Tottenham have got a lot of games in hand. Man United have a game in hand over Arsenal. But that's the battle for fourth, isn't it? You know, your Arsenal, West Ham, United, maybe Spurs. Probably not Wolves, but I mean, points-wise and possibly in the conversation. So I think um, that battle for fourth is the one I'm really going to look forward to watching because I think so. I, I think it'll end up being Man United, but I think it could be a very interesting battle. The biggest shock for me is actually Crystal Palace. I tipped them at the very beginning of the season to go down because they got rid of half their squad. They got a new manager in, gone in a completely different direction. And I just thought it was too much of a change to be successful. But 
although they've only won four games, they're sat comfortably in 11th. They don't look like they're in any kind of trouble. The team seems to be gelling quite nicely. I don't think Vieira quite knows his starting 11 quite yet because I've noticed Edouard keeps bouncing in and out of the side and they're not playing him up front. They're playing him off the wings. I think he's struggling to try and get the pieces together. But they definitely look comfortable. Arsenal have been the big surprise. To be fair, I think we went in a bit hard on Arsenal because we criticised them for signing Ben White for 50 million quid. And we questioned the signing of Aaron Ramsey, who, Ramsdale. to be fair... Is it, is, sorry, is it... Yeah, sorry. Aaron Ramsdale. Sorry, we were talking about Juve. My mind immediately went to Aaron <laughs> Ramsdale. Aaron Ramsdale, and, and we, we questioned, like, would he play? Why have they paid so much money for a backup goalkeeper? And I did say on that podcast that like it depends if he is going to be the backup or not. And it turns out he's not. He's been arguably their best player after about two or three games that he started playing. The one that's really caught my eye at Arsenal, though, is the new right-back, Tommy Asu from Japan. Tommy Asu. he come from nowhere. No one really knew anything about him. And... Arsenal have struggled for years for a right-back ever since Hector Bellerin was young. And um, he seems to have just walked straight into the Premier League and he looks like he's belonged there. They've got another full-back. Is it Tavares? Who's coming, who's keeping Kieran Tierney out the side. And that shocks me because Kieran Tierney is a fantastic defender. Arguably, in my opinion, their best player. So Arsenal have been a big surprise. I must admit, you called Newcastle. Wow, what a call that was. I'll level on points with Norwich. I haven't played a game yeah. less, but they look in banging trouble. I think the bottom five, in my opinion, are the five that are in the battle. I think Southampton always seem to just do enough, so I don't really include them. Leeds have looked awful, and I'm convinced it's... We talked about it a bit on, on our group chat, me, you and, and Pete. They've not built a squad. Bielsa likes to build a small squad. Known to work his players a lot. They've worked really hard for two, three seasons. The squad hasn't had much turnover. They've not had many breaks because of competitions and et cetera, et cetera. This squad might just be burnt out. It might just be the end of this squad. Their biggest thing is they need to stay up. If they stay up, then they can rebuild and it might be fine. But the squad needs change. Watford, I think, could have it. And then Burnley, again, they need to just win games, don't they? Eight draws so far this season. Leeds, I think you're right. I don't think it's they might be. I think they are done. I think they're cooked completely. All the players, they've lost players because the manager has essentially run them into the ground until they've got injured. Brought them back too early in the case of Calvin Phillips and immediately got injured again because he wasn't ready to hit that sort of training. I mean, even with Dan James, Dan James, everyone knows I love Dan James, but taking away all of that from it. The guy runs like a train. He's got stamina forever. And even he looks exhausted. So for me, I, I think Leeds are in real trouble. And if they don't, maybe a controversial opinion now, but if they don't get a new manager in pretty quick, I think they, they might go down. If they stay up, I think it'll only be because Newcastle, Norwich and Burnley are worse. And speaking of clubs where the wheels look like they've come off, Burnley have done fantastic for such a small club to stay in the Premier League for so long. Sean Dyche has worked wonders. Much like Eddie Howe at Bournemouth, I said this on the uh, the preview podcast, 
I think it's time to run out, and it certainly looks like it. And I mentioned something the other week on our on, again on our group chat. Burnley have more or less, well, they do have the exact same amount of wins as Newcastle United. It's not being spoke about. People aren't saying it's only one point different. For me, and even saying that, even though I say that, I will still tell you right now that I think Norwich and Newcastle are sunk and Burnley have a chance. I think there's one spot up for grabs. As I said, I think Norwich and Newcastle, if you, I had an argument, well, not an argument, me and Ryan had a discussion, and I said, he, Ryan said Newcastle are down. I said, we'll see the results they get because they had, I think it was Norwich, Burnley, and someone else, and I can't tell you who that someone else was, but there was another slightly easier game before they hit the run they've got now, which is god awful i said they need to get some wins if they get wins they've got a chance uh, the other one was leicester they now have uh, liverpool man city man united everton and southampton to take them through to the new year likelihood is they lose at least three of them uh, that could be nine points they'll be cut adrift and then in january good luck so that could, i think we could basically now say goodbye to newcastle and norwich and there's really one place for someone to drop Watford have got goals in them, though. That's the thing for me, which I think might get them up there because Emmanuel Dennis has done very well in his debut season. He scored and assisted quite a few goals. So I think it's something like 11 goal involvements in total in 16 games, if I remember rightly. Mm. Yeah. I reckon he might score the goals to keep them up. Southampton, they all, like you said, they always seem to hover there and then they'll pick up a little bit of form towards the end of the season. And they'll stay up. I think the bottom three now is probably the bottom three that is going to go down. Looking at them, just because I think Leeds, when they get their players back, when they get Bamford back, they've got someone who can actually lead the line because they've been relying on, what's his name? Is it Tyler Roberts? Tyler Roberts, yeah. And he's not Premier League level at all. No, No offense to him, but he's just not. Uh, and Calvin Phillips as well. And I know they've got a couple of defensive injuries as well. So when they can get those guys back, as long as they can stay in touch with everybody else, then I think they might pull it off. The big one at the moment for me is Everton. They started the season with, shall we say, a very tight budget, but they brought in Rafa Benitez. Everyone was expecting him to make them solid, make them defensively sound. And I know they've had injuries. A lot of key players have been injured but they are plummeting like a stone. So, yeah, I reckon the bottom three now, which is Burnley, Newcastle and Norwich, are going to be the three that goes down. And I think it'll be a case of if Burnley go down, I don't think we'll see them come back up again for a long time. Yeah, I think we said it before, didn't we? It's time, I think, for Sean Dyche to go somewhere else and let someone new break in. Talking of breaking, a little bit of breaking news for you that care on the international stage. The Nations League draw has taken place. If you've been on the podcast before, it's the the way that Europe have decided to get rid of friendlies. Uh, England have been drawn in almost a group of death. So uh, a revenge game against Italy, home and away. A trip to Germany, home and away. And Hungary, home and away. So a nice few games for England to prepare for the World Cup in March. And we'll move on to our next topic which is captains. Ryan, I'll let you um, set us up. And then I've got the list of the captains so we can go through the clubs and talk about their lovely captains. Right. Well, this 
came about because, I don't know if people have been following the news, Pierre Aubameyang has been stripped of the Arsenal captaincy for what they've deemed as a breach of club discipline. He's got a record throughout his career of basically going away and coming back late. And as a club captain, you can't really do that because it sets a bad example for everybody else. So they've stripped him of the captaincy and they're currently in the process of arranging who the new captain will be for however long we don't know. It could be till the end of the season. It could be one for the future. No real statement's been made at this point, apart from that Aubameyang's been stripped. And it just led me to think, where are all the old-fashioned captains, the leaders, the screamers, the shouters? Because there seems to be this new wave. I don't know if it's coming from foreign coaches specifically, but when you listen to coaches talk, I mean, Arteta spoke about there's a team of leaders. And I think it was Louis van Gaal. He like picked, I think when he was at Man United, he picked like five captains. Mm. And like they were the yeah. leadership. Because Chris Smalling was one of them. I'm just a bit confused as to what constitutes being a captain now, because the armband doesn't seem to mean that much. And I'm wondering if that's a foreign influence, because if you look at some of the the teams abroad, basically whoever's their best player gets the armband or whoever's the longest serving gets the armband. You know, it seems whoever's stock is the highest to get, gets the armband. So for me, I, I just think it's, it, we haven't seen someone like a Roy Keane or a, a John Terry or a Tony Adams or someone that vocal, even Steven Gerrard to a degree, maybe wasn't as vocal, but he was still the driving force of the side. Whereas we've got players now that are just passing around the armband for fun. I mean, what's it like at Charlton, Dan? Does the captaincy still mean anything or is it passed around down there too? So I think you made a really good comment. I'll get to your question. I think you made a really good comment about foreign managers. And I, I do, didn't actually think about that. I was going to say, I think captaincy in the top level now is not necessarily about now about who's the leader is in like, who's going to be the driving force. It's more about who your flashiest player is or who's the one that the media are going to talk about. Hence Aubameyang or, you know, someone there's a few obviously that don't, but Aubameyang, because obviously we don't know what goes on behind the training ground, but that sniffed of he's your best player. When Chelsea were in the premier league towards the back, when we got relegated, like our captain was Darren Bent. And that was purely because he was our best player at Charlton. Our captain's Jason Pierce, because he is your, jump on the ball when it's moving, you know, type of player. Not necessarily our best player, but the loudest on the pitch and throws himself at the ball. And obviously, I can't say that for every team in the lower leagues, but I'd say the last three or four Charlton captains, you've got Jason Pearce, Solly, Jackson. These are all people that that had that ability. And even our vice-captain, I'm not his biggest fan, Chris Gunter. He's worn the armband a few times, but throws himself in front of the ball, you know, shouting. I don't know what he's shouting about half the time, but, you know, he's there. So, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder if it is, you know, maybe a, a continental and a, a look at captaincy. I don't know how captains were. Even in the championship, because I look at the championship captains and the majority of them, I'd say, are kind of what I would call leaders with the odd one thrown in, that, as you rightly said, you know, that maybe are their best player. But I've got a list of Premier League captains, so it's not enough better quarters. So, we'll start with Everton. Their captain, Seamus Coleman. Yeah, again, a, uh, a long-serving player, but does he scream captaincy material? My only problem with that one is I don't know if there's anyone in the Everton side that does scream captain's material. 
But again, I think that one's longevity. So I can understand that one. I wouldn't necessarily agree because I think the other question, Ryan, it's interesting to you. Do you think a captain is better in a certain area of the field? Yes. I've always been of the belief that captains should either be a central midfielder or a centre-back. Anyone who can see the game coming towards them. Goalkeepers, for me personally, are too far back. And I wouldn't want to lumber any responsibility on my strikers besides putting the ball in the net. That's all I'd ever want them to do. Wide players can tend to drift in and out of the game, be them fullbacks or wingers, whatever you want to call them. Plus, I always grew up having central midfielders or central defenders that were captains. I grew up as a Man United fan and it was Brian Robson. It was Roy Keane. It was Steve Bruce. You know, and then Gary Neville took it from Roy Keane, which wasn't quite the same, but... Gary Neville was still as vocal. I mean, if you just look at him now on Sky Sports and on everything else, mm. he never shuts up about anything, be it Salford, be it Man United, be it politics. And then over the years, it's sort of wallowed down. I mean, we've got Harry Maguire as our captain now. And although he plays in the right position, for me personally, he's not captaincy material. He's not a screamer. He's not a shouter. He doesn't play well to say, right, here I am. I'm leading by example. Follow me. But who would you give the armband to at United? When I watch United, there's someone that I always see shouting and screaming. But I, I don't know. It's a popular decision. I think De Gea could be a captain for Man United. I completely disagree. I don't think David De Gea can command his own box, let alone a team. He's a, <laughs> he's a fantastic shot stopper. Don't get me wrong. When it comes to shot stopping, David De Gea is world class. But the rest of his game is nowhere near up to scratch. The main difference, as I've said on the podcast before, between Man United's defence this season and last season is the goalkeeper. So for me personally, I would give it to Bruno Fernandes because if you look pre, we're talking pre-Ronaldo here because there seems to have been some sort of power balance upset now that Ronaldo's coming in terms of within Bruno Fernandes himself. If you looked at him before Ronaldo and to an extent now, even though Ronaldo's there, he's still trying to drive the team. He's still very vocal he doesn't chase back as much. If you looked at him in his first year or so at Man United, if he lost the ball, he'd chase back and win it. And that would get everybody up and going, the crowd, the players. And now he's just sort of like, well, I'm throwing my hands up in the air and I'm complaining to the referee instead he, of chasing back. So he is actually down as your vice captain, according to Transfer Market. So I don't know if that's... Don't know, again, I don't know how accurate their advices are, but I know that their captains are. But he's down as your vice, so... But I mean, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer didn't seem to think too much of the captaincy either, which was quite a shock when you consider who his captain was, because he was handing it to people like Paul Pogba. And the, Paul Pogba, this baffles me because people have talked about Paul Pogba gives these rousing speeches for France and he's a leader of France. I've actually seen the video clips of him giving these rousing speeches for France. And if you look, when someone's speaking, you can only judge what they're saying by the reaction they get. So if they say something and everyone's like, well, yeah, all right, come on, let's have it, then that's great. The video footages I've seen of Paul Pogba is basically an overpaid prima donna running his mouth in a changing room and everybody else is sat on the bench fiddling about with their shoelaces and rolling up their socks, waiting for him to stop talking balls. So how he gets to be Man United captain for even five minutes, I don't know. Personally, I would give it to Bruno Fernandes and my number two would be Dean Henderson. Everyone keeps talking about giving it to Cristiano Ronaldo, but Cristiano Ronaldo is 
some might argue the ultimate professional he is to a degree in the way that he trains the way he looks after himself but ultimately Ronaldo is about Ronaldo he's not about the team in the way that a Tony Adams was about the team or a Roy King was about the team he's just like I want to be the best I want to score the most goals I want to win stuff and I'm going to do it, it football really for Ronaldo and Messi is not a team game it's their game so I wouldn't give the captaincy to Ronaldo because he's too individually focused on himself so no but I mean the other thing I always thinking about this is just like is this also a societal thing because as we obviously got older society has changed and we're now in a society where everybody is allowed to have the say Nobody's allowed to be offended about anything, even though everybody's offended about everything. Everyone's got the right to an opinion. No one's allowed to force their opinion on anything on anyone else. And that's where it kind of got me thinking, because like you hear in the past so many managers say that their captains were them on the pitch. So their captains would enforce their opinion. If you look at Roy Keane, he's like, you're not good enough. If you can't do this, then you're not good enough. It just makes me wonder if we actually have those characters in the dressing rooms anymore that are allowed to say those things without upsetting some poor snowflake that's on about 300 grand a week. I think at the top level, probably bang on, as said, in the Football League, I think there are still those old school captains. I think when... It's a a debate that we've had many times now, but in the changing room and around football clubs, the most powerful people are the players and their agents. Their player can decide he's angry, he's done there, and it's done. Do you know what I mean? It's sharp shop, and on we go. So I think that that kind of rule by fist attitude doesn't really exist anymore because of the power. I think in the lower leagues, you don't necessarily have that power as a player. So they still have those. As I said, Charlton have quite a commanding captain. But on to the next few clubs. There's three clubs in a row here, and I actually think their captains kind of speak by their club. So you've got Jordan Henderson, I think is a great captain for Liverpool. Good leader, does his job well. James Ward-Prowse, copy and paste the comments from Jordan Henderson. And Mark Noble obviously doesn't start that often for West Ham, but when he does, obviously now it's Declan Rice. Again, leader, passionate, first in the tackle. Everything you want from that kind of role. There are three names there. And I completely agree with all three of them as captain choices for their individual clubs. Yeah, I'd agree with them. I think James Ward-Prowse is maybe not as vocal as the other two, but I think his performances, he basically runs Southampton from top to bottom, just on the pitch, week in, week out. Set pieces, he's amazing. All three of us have spoken on this podcast about how much we love James Ward-Prowse and think he should be in the England team and should be playing at a bigger club. So but he's maybe not the same style of leader, but he's definitely there. But, I mean, throw me some of the names that you would question whether they're captains or not. So, the, to be fair, there's not really many. Newcastle's Jamal Lascelles. No. I don't rate him as a footballer, personally. So that he's one... a championship centre-back playing in the Premier League. All their centre-backs are. Watford's Musa Sissoko. No, he only turned uh, up in the summer anyway. I, yeah, exactly what I was going to say. I... I think the captain shouldn't walk through the door. There's the armband for me. Does share duties with Tom Cleverley, but if they're both in the squad, Moussa Sissoko is the captain. I I think for me, unless you're in a situation where Arsenal are in right now, 
where you've got no real standout candidate apart from someone who's just came through the front door, then I, I think you're right. I think a captain should be there for a few years. They've gone the opposite way. They've gone from Troy Deeney, who was there for years, to someone who's walked in the door last July. So he doesn't scream captaincy material to me either. Do you know who was the Arsenal captain on Tuesday? The other night, when did they play Tuesday? On Alexandra Lacazette, I believe. And that's right, another, that one. That's another one because he's another person who's leading leaving the club in the summer. So ironically, Man, Man City's captaincy is exactly what you spoke by. Their stats of who's captain this season is spread around four players. So they have Fernandinho, Ilkay Gundogan, Kevin De Bruyne and Ruben Diaz. They've all shared the captaincy, mostly captained by Ilkay Gundogan and Fernandinho. Of those two, I would say Diaz and Fernandinho. The other, yeah. De Bruyne, I don't see as a, I understand why they've given him the captaincy because he he can be quite vocal because I've actually seen him arguing with his own teammates, but it's predominantly performance. Gundogan won, that confuses me. I know he's a very good player, a very consistent player, but he doesn't scream captain material to me. And the other thing, just want to quickly go back to what you touched on about players outliving the manager. Because obviously growing up under the Alex Ferguson era, Alex Ferguson's word was law. He was Manchester United. Do you think the adoption of the director of football has had an effect and weakened the manager's position because players look at them now and say, well, actually, you're not really the manager here anymore. You're just coaching me. So you're probably going to go before I go because there's Mm. someone upstairs looking at you and then if the managers this is also brings the second part of the same question is a club's ethos and a club's identity used to come from the manager in part anyway because obviously you've got like the history of the club and 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 that but predominantly the manager was like right this is how we're doing it you follow my way or you go and now they've got someone above the manager saying right well the club's actually doing this you need to do this. So you are essentially as expendable as a football player is because we can ship you in, ship you out if you don't live up to the philosophy. Mm. So I'll just run through quickly. We'll rattle off the rest of the Premier League captains. I don't think there's many errors in here. So Brighton's Lewis Dunk, fine with that. Brentford, Pontus Janssen. Burnley, Ben Mee. Norwich, Grant Hanley. The bottom of the Premier League, it's very centre-back heavy, isn't it? Leicester, Kasper Schmeichel, fine. Crystal Palace, they're evenly spread. Again, they spread between uh, Luka Miljolovic and James MacArthur, so two midfielders. Chelsea's Aspilicueta. Wolves, Connor Cody, Villa, Tyrone Mings, Leeds, Liam Cooper. I think that's it. Oh, and Tottenham, Hugo Lloris, which I don't agree with that one. Hugo um, Lloris has never been a leader. And but then again, to Tottenham at- is the same thing. I don't really know who I'd want the captain to be at Tottenham because people would say Harry Kane and I never wanted him to be the England captain. So, so I'm not sure I'd want him to be the, him to be the Tottenham captain. I wanted Jordan Henderson. Harry Kane is another one that he sort of leads by example more than verbally. I thought he was the Tottenham captain. No, it's but, Hugo Lloris. Well, this is the other thing because there's now a change in the way things club. are done because you've now got a club captain and a team captain Whereas beforehand, they used to be the same thing. Whereas the club captain takes care of a lot of stuff that's off the pitch. Whereas the team captain is the inspirational leader for the match day. So is Hugo Lloris club captain or team captain? 
It says here, the captain of Tottenham Hotspur is Hugo Lloris and vice-captain is Harry Kane. That's all it says. Right, okay. So I'm assuming there's just captain and vice But I do know teams where... Cholton, I think I remember hearing the thing that, like, towards the back end of Johnny Jackson's career, he was club captain and Chris Solly was team captain because Jacko wasn't on the pitch. Mm. So he dealt with the off-field stuff and Chris Solly was the 90 minutes captain. He shouldn't have been, but he was. But yeah, I think we kind of covered that quite nicely. Well, Captains have definitely sorry, changed, haven't they? Just going back to a bit, I just wanted, wanted to get your view on whether you thought the director of football has had a, a negative impact on managers' authority in a football club. I think it depends how, how the director of football is installed. If director of football and a head coach, then yes, 100%. Because you obviously a lot of clubs are now leaning towards head coaches where they don't make their own signings. They're not allowed. They're kind of. Who was I listening to the other day? Who said certain managers are willing to be given a "Here's your team. Here's what we've given you. Go and sort it." For instance, Wolves. You know their business is done by the director of football, and Nuno Santos was given. Here's your players. You work out what you're going to do with them. You're the coach. So I think obviously in those cases, 100%. If clubs do go with the more managerial look, which are I don't think really it's a popular thing in the Premier League, obviously lower down. I think director, they're still director of football role, like Charlton have a director of football, but his role is very different to the Wolves director of football. He's more chiefs, the kind of in charge of scouting and, and stuff rather than kind of getting involved with match day. Match day is down to right now, Johnny Jackson and Jason Yule and Steve Gallen is overlooking scouting. So I think it depends how the director of football is deployed, I guess is the right term. But as I said, for clubs like Wolves, Chelsea, um, over the years, the director of football have a massive say in what happens at the football club. I mean, look at PSG. Is it Leonardo? Yeah. It, it takes over. He's in charge, isn't he, at PSG? There's no other way of putting it, really. If the manager does something he doesn't agree with, he changes the manager's mind. He makes the signings. So I think, it, I think at the top level, 100%. I was going to say, because Everton recently fired Marcel Brand and have basically given the control of the club to Rafa Benitez, haven't they? So they've gone the opposite direction. And obviously Manchester City, the first thing they did when they got their money was they went over to Barcelona and they took uh, Bagiristan and who was the other one? I have no idea who's running Man City, I won't lie. Uh, it was Dixie Bagiristan and the other one. Basically, they took, took out the two high-ups that had just left Barcelona and they basically put them in Man City and said, do what you did at Barcelona and sort it all out for us. And that's exactly what they did. But it, it, it just <laughs> strikes to me now that if a manager has no authority, then how can he get a captain to buy into what he's pushing and then expect him to push that to the players? And I think that's it's so much now is done on what's, again, like something that we can't really say too much, but stuff that goes on behind closed doors. You know, I think if a coach is, is liked, it's a lot more easier. So, it because I even think like Guardiola, for instance, as a head coach, I'm sure once he kind of gets in to his role, he has a say to the director of football. So, the players obviously respect Guardiola more than if they hired... Yeah, like, for instance, with Pep Guardiola, he obviously has this power to the players because of his history. So, the director of football has to almost be wary that the players that might side with Pep because of his pedigree is the right term, I guess. Where with someone like 
Bruno Large, his reputation isn't as much there in many ways. So the players probably might think, all right, well, if this goes a bit wrong, we can probably get him out. But actually, it's gone well for them. For instance, even to a degree, look at Palace with De Boer. You know, the players didn't like him and it looked like they just down tall, didn't they, to get him gone. He went, Roy Hodgson came in and even though Roy Hodgson wasn't, you know, making the world light up for Palace, he did enough to keep them kind of boring and mid-table combined to Frank De Boer where the players went, we're not having this. So I think there's a happy median, I guess. I suppose it also depends on the role that director of football takes in an essence, because we've talked before about how there's sort of two different types of directors of football, ones that aid the manager by taking away some of the responsibilities that they need more time for. And then you've got ones that are dictating every single thing at the club. But you talking about Pep, actually, it just makes me wonder, would you consider him a manager or would you consider him a head coach? A head coach, because at both Barcelona and City, as you rightly said, I can't even begin to try and pronounce the guy's name you did. It's gone X in the middle of it for no reason. He's another one where the players are kind of bought for him. I think he does say, I would like this player, and then they go and do the business because Man City are made of money. But I'd have him down as a head coach. I think he's more of a coach than the man man manager, which is kind of what managers are looked at nowadays, aren't they? Managers nowadays. Uh, you always notice if someone's a manager, it's because they're a man manager, and if someone's a coach, it's because they're tactically strong. I'd have him down as a head coach. But I think a lot of the managers managers in quotations now are head coaches especially at the top level funnily enough i would say the same thing because i I don't know if we brought this up before but who would you say the best manager is is at the moment or head coach because for me it's between klopp and pep in the premier league but i think they're both different because i think klopp is a manager although they've got a transfer committee i think he manages the the whole club much more than, than pep does i think pep's got a reputation for a improving players and that's why when he's gone to the biggest clubs in the world like Bayern and Barcelona he's improved the players and won stuff but the the transfer and the scouting and everything is is out of his hands who would you rather have managing your club if you had the choice I had this argument really recently actually with one of my friends and I said Jurgen Klopp because he's built teams as you said Guardiola's kind of gone in at he might have taken them from A to A plus or A star in England, but he's never started a team at C, D, where when Klopp was at Dortmund, he took over, they were a D side. Liverpool were, you know, playing Andre Foran in a dirt cow, you know, and those kind of, at, at that level where they weren't, they were getting there, but weren't something. Jurgen Klopp has built two title winning sides has won stuff in Europe. And you've got to remember, he took a Dortmund side to a Champions League final and was beaten by a fantastic Bayern Munich team. I think Jurgen Klopp is the better manager. Obviously, I can't say as a coach because I can't see either of them on the uh, on the training field. But also, I just like the way Klopp is as a person. I would pick Jurgen Klopp. You see, I would have agreed with you up until about two years ago because, like you said, Pep Guardiola's track record of employment is essentially going over taking over the biggest clubs with the best players and then leaving once he's won everything however at city if you look at the city team that he's got now compared to the city team that he got when he was there he's now actually developed this side to to a whole different level with a completely different bunch of players 
I think for me, I'd probably still want Klopp as, to manage Man United because like when he was available, I was baffled that we didn't go for him. But um, I just think he's like better with the media as well. I noticed Pep's got a bit spiky recently, with, especially with his own fans in the media. Um, because I think the fans were disgruntled and they were booing a little bit. And uh, he pulled it out. My only thing I'd say on, on that is if you look at Klopp's first Liverpool team, the first 11 that he put out on his first game compared to Pep, not a fantastic, but a, a, a good, a strong base. They, they, they had one thing. Liverpool's wasn't, wasn't, wasn't fantastic. So Man City, I've got the two teams here. So Man City's was Caballero in goal, Bakary Sanya, Stones, Kolarov, Clichy, Fernandinho, David Silva, De Bruyne, Sterling, Aguero and Nolito. Who? If you take out probably Nolito, the Spanish winger, mm-hmm. Kolarov, Clichy, I mean, they're still good. And the four, five, if five of the players are still there now. Aguero's just left. So I think he started with a very good base. Um, whereas Klopp's first team was Mignolet, Moreno, Sacco, Skirtle, Klein, Lucas Lieva, Emre Chan, Lalana, James Milner, Divock Origi and Coutinho. Four <laughs> decent players there. Klopp, Nathaniel Klopp. Klein, Coutinho, James Milner and Emre That's Chan, it. I think. Maybe Emre Chan, if you can keep him fit. But, so Jesus. Guardiola's core that is there now or that was so important to him was there when he took over. Obviously, he's added to it, made them all better, but yeah, the but core was there. My argument is it's not there now. It was. No, but it but was. What, Most... what I'm saying is, is normally under his previous record, he would have walked in, won a bunch of stuff with that core, maybe added one or two, and then buggered off after four years. But he's rocking on, I think no, he's yeah, done, what, right. seven years now? But I do have a feeling that he's done six, yeah. But I have a feeling that his time at City is coming up to done, if not maybe next year, in my opinion. I don't know about you, but I think his time might be coming up. I kind of get the feeling that he's trying to edge it out just until he gets that Champions League win. And then as soon as he's got that, he's off. I wondered, and it's something that, again, I had a discussion with one of my friends recently. I wondered if he's trying to go full circle. So he's waiting for Barcelona to sort themselves out and then jump back on the Barcelona hype to kind of commit full circle, if that makes sense. But obviously Barcelona to sort themselves out first. So he's hanging around at City until that happens. I'm not sure because they've got Xavi now, haven't they? Who's supposed to be the next Pep. Hmm, But Um, we'll see. (laughs) My kind of feeling is, is I think he's waiting for a good job to arrive in Italy because he's done Spain, he's done Germany and he's done England. So the other big one is Italy. So maybe it's like a Juventus Juventus? sort, sort themselves out, get their finances in order. They've got so many players that are massively overpaid and underplayed. Like, I mean, Aaron Ramsey's on about 400 grand a week over there. Or someone like a Milan that uh, have finally sorted themselves out and are up and coming now. I think they're top of the league at the moment. So mm. as soon as their, their current manager, I think it's Stefan Pioli. It is. As soon as like, that fades away, I think maybe he might be looking because he has a tendency to do his years at one club, take a, a year off 
and then goes somewhere else. I think if he goes back to Barcelona, he's essentially on a hiding to nothing. I think Pep's ego is, is enormous. We talk about the likes of Messi and Ronaldo having big egos. But I think Pep's is enormous. And I don't think he'd want to go back somewhere after building up such a reputation. of I've won so much with all these glorious players that I'm going to go back with a, a, a squad that is nowhere even close to that lot and expect him to improve it. I'm not sure he'll want to do it. Yeah, no, fair, that's very fair. I think there's another jo- big job for Pep before maybe he goes. Another one that could end up in international management. I actually think that like, it's going to be literally leave City, take a year off, do a couple of years in Italy, take a year off, Spain manager's job. Yeah, I mean, we discussed, didn't we, that Zidane's next job and I was quite a big advocate of his next job will be the French job. So I think maybe Pep's got his eyes, as you rightly said, on the Spanish job. Who's the current Spain? Enrique in charge of Spain right now? I don't know. It was Luis Enrique, but if I remember rightly, didn't he become ill and had to... No, it's still Luis Enrique. Is it still Luis? Who was it who yes, became ill checked. and had to leave the Spain job? Uh, not long after they took it. I thought it was Luis Enrique. It might have been. Maybe he's come back. Let me have a look. So they're national, national team manager of Spain. Yeah, no, so it was uh, Enrique briefly stepped down from his managerial post for personal reasons, returned to Spain ahead of the Euros in 2021. Okay. And still is today. So we'll move on. Closing stretch uh, of this week's show. We'll move on to the shithousery of the week. The shithouses are a bit of a difficult week for shithousery, Ryan. There's not been a lot of shithousery. The international scene has been quiet. We've been abroad a lot. So we're coming home this week and we're coming to uh, kind of our neck of the woods. We're coming to the Selk League, which is the Southeastern Counties League, which is Southeast London with a few kind of Kent knocking. It's Lewisham, blah, 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 Greenwich. For people that live in and around South London, you'll understand. There was um, a big non-league game recently. Streatham Rovers played Sydney United. For you that don't know, they're not far apart. And um, after the game, I don't, I have no idea what the result was to let you know, but I just thought this is hilarious. Streatham Rovers put on their Twitter page, and I'll read it for you. It's, I think it's genius. Here, uh, Streatham Rovers FC tweeted, here's a team sheet for tonight's game. And we were absolutely furious because Sydney have fielded their players to spell out SRFC or shit. <laughs> we know this for a fact because Dane Francis, who is a striker, is wearing the number three shirt. We hope the league committee threw the book at them. So, when you look at the Sydney United team, it, they are right because it's Barry Saunders. So it's Saunders, Rankin, Francis, Cole Dixon. So that's SRFC. Andrews, Rodriguez, and Ek Smith, Henderson, Igokachukwu, and Taylor. So it oh rightly spells SRFC. And I know someone who coaches in the same league, and I sent it to him and said. Is this in position order or are Streatham having a laugh? And he said, no, I can tell you that I've worked with some of these players and some of the, the bloke up front who's wearing the number nine, the number 10, I think it was the number 10 or nine, I have to go back and look for my messages. It's a centre half, so they've done that on purpose. And ah. I thought, that's fantastic shit, Azri. That's amazing. To the people at Sydney United, well done. Well oh played. my God, that's amazing. I mean, there was some attempted shit, Azri, with uh, Tim Krull in the recent Manchester United versus uh, Norwich City game, where he tried to put... He did everything to try and put Ronaldo off of scoring that penalty. But unfortunately, he made himself look like a complete plank because Ronaldo promptly scored it. And I don't know if you saw it. Did you see Football Focus on BBC 
on. No. I was at Charlton game last Saturday. Well, they showed something that for me was a little bit of shithousery. Go on their website if you can. It might still be on there. But basically, what happened was is two players for one team were running towards goal, and a player from the other team came in behind them and accidentally clipped both of them when trying to win the ball. The shithousery was is they both did, and I literally kid you not, this is perfectly synchronized diving. They hit the floor, rolled over into the fetal position, repeatedly had both <laughs> of their hands up over their face. It was literally second to second perfect. If you can find it, check it out because you'll just look at it and be like, what the? Plonka Pundit of the week this week. This one's a cracker, Dan. I can't wait to see what you think of this. This goes to former, I think he's Irish, Tony Cascarino. I think he was Irish striker. On his views on fouls and penalties, I'll just read you his article, a uh, brief caption from his article on, in the Times. Not all penalties are equal, says Tony Cascarino. You get those where a 12-yard shot at the goalkeeper is appropriate, and you get those where it is far too high a reward. Take a penalty that Raheem Sterling won against Swansea City on Saturday. It gave Manchester City a much greater chance of scoring than Sterling had when he went down. The outcome was not fair. Could you not have two different types of penalty taken from two different places? Stick a second penalty spot on the edge of the 18-yard box and use it. For example, for fouls when a player is clipped with his back to goal. If he is one-on-one and brought down by the goalkeeper, Use the 12-yard spot. What the I fuck mean, is he talking about? My brain's hurting. I, I think understand he's what he's saying, but it's both. Well, I mean, if technically we do have two types, because you have a penalty and an indirect free kick in the box, but yep. what he's just said is just bollocks has fallen out of his mouth there, really, isn't it, really? It I mean, if... Me. It, it's quite simple, really. If you're fouled in the box, it's a penalty. I don't care how you, if how you're fouled. If it's a judge to be a foul, it's a penalty. Get on with it. But he's, he's claiming the severity of the foul should dictate where the penalty is taken. He basically wants a free kick in the box, which is no. He, he wants a penalty from the from what? No, yeah, but I mean, as in, instead. But yeah. I mean, as in, he wants like as in they'll be able to put the ball in different spots depending on where. Yeah. No, if it's in the box, penalty, mate. He's just like, if, if you get hacked down one-on-one with a goalkeeper, you take it from the 12-yard... Is it 12-yard line? I do like the idea. I don't think... I mean, I'm saying this jokingly, but I do... It does sound funny to me. If a keeper has a really good record moving the ball five yards forward, you know, like, if you know you're playing a Tim Krull, because Tim Krull's historically good at penalties, have a few yards, try to score. But, but he's talking about moving it backwards, like, by the way, closer. For people that take that seriously, it's a joke. So don't think I'm taking it seriously, but... Yeah, he's, I mean, it's a stupid quote. He's obviously fought too hard, bless him. He's got a bit confused and he's pushed out some bollocks, hasn't he, really? We had this when the MLS first started back up in the 90s. The way they I used to love their, their penalty penalties, shootouts, though. Yeah, the way they used to take their penalties, they were like, we need to change the way they take penalties in England. So what we're going to do is we're going to do it the same way we do it in ice hockey, which is they're going to start by running with the ball from the halfway line. And then run but up did and you try not and think shoot. That was kind of cool. No, I thought it was bollocks. I don't understand why people keep needing to change the game of football. The game of football is fine. The people involved with the game of football are the freaking problem. 
I don't rate VAR either. I don't know about you. Goal line technology, no. I'm no, all VAR in favour of. me off. Yeah, I'm all in favour for goal line technology. If the ball's crossed the line and you didn't see it, I'm all for that. But this is offside by a toenail. So we can't count that. Or we're going to go back and review this because the referee, we don't think, has made the right decision. It kills the game for me because it's like you score a goal and you go to celebrate and then you have to stop, calm yourself down, and then if it's a goal again, you have to run off like a nutter and celebrate it. It just... For me, it's killing football. I don't know about you. I would like to say on the MLS thing, I wouldn't like to see it in England. But I did... I, I enjoy that. Don't get me wrong. I, as an ice hockey fan, I understand it. I watch it. I love it. But I don't want it on my football pitch. That's for ice hockey. I kind of liked it. Where do you stand on extra time? Because obviously they've made changes because of COVID. Are you in favour of going back to extra time once all this COVID's over, or do you want to go straight to penalties? It depends. And, and I right now would lean towards going straight to penalties because I feel like there's so many games of football these clubs are being played. The more time you can limit the players being on the pitch, the better. Especially, for example, again, saying it from a Charlton perspective, Charlton play 46 football league games. If we go to an FA Cup, I don't want the players to be playing an extra half hour and then possibly a replay. Sorry, an, sorry, an hour, uh, a game, then having another 90 minutes and then a replay. So for me, I'm quite happy with the game finishing and going to penalties. I also think it adds a bit more drama because it's 90 minutes. I've, I've been at games where after 90 minutes, the teams kind of drop off to prepare for extra time. For example, it didn't happen, ironically, but Cholton Sunderland at Wembley, both teams were quite settled to go to extra time. It was going to be 1-1. We were going to go to extra time. We won a free kick and scored. Even the free kick was kind of from nowhere. Like It was a long ball hump forward. Josh Parker tries to bring it down and is thrown out of the way. It was going to be 1-1. It was going to go to extra time. So I'm okay with them. If they choose to keep extra time away, I'm okay with it. I must admit, I'm inclined to agree. I think we just should just go straight to penalties now. I'm also in favour of getting rid of replays. Uh, I think they take up oh, yeah, too much time. Replays. They take up too much time. They're expensive. I understand and, uh, the argument for the smaller clubs making a lot of money, but I think they'd actually get more money going and getting a cut of the gate receipt at a Man United well, than so, they will so, get in a home gate receipt. So this is the thing that people that make that argument don't really understand is whatever the gate receipt in, say, in the FA Cup, whatever the gate receipt, if they're home or away... The, the rule is, it's 50%. So if, pick out a random tie out of my ass, Cholton played, who do we play in? Don't know, St Albans. We don't play, we've never played St Albans to my knowledge, but we play St Albans. If it's at home for St Albans, and in fairness, a lot of teams do give, the, give it away. Cholton played Truro a few years ago and we gave Truro all the money. Um, it's 50-50. So for St Albans, surely they'd rather it was at the Valley and say you get 5,000 and, and take it, then be at home. I get why you want to be at home for footballing reasons. You know, the pitch is dodgy, the fans, etc. But in terms of money, surely it's better to be at home. You know, be away, sorry, and, and travel into somewhere. Like the FA Cup draw, and I'm being a Charlton fans, the people will say, will, will say, oh, you did get a big draw technically, but there was a point where Charlton were going to get Arsenal. And... 
that's we got Norwich at home, but a trip to the Emirates would have been a lot more not only financially, probably a bit on TV. It's a good away day. And also, you're probably going to get more of attendance because I don't expect many Chelsea fans to want to watch for Norwich, frankly. Um, and plus, away games, it gets you more money. As I said, against the bigger teams. As you rightly said, like someone coming to Old Trafford, I remember, was it Southend, Man United, a few, uh, going back way, way back, 10, 15 years now. That was at Southend, obviously. So you can get those magical results when you're kind of at home. But financially, it makes so much more sense to play away, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, from my understanding is is that Man United pre-cost, this is obviously like stewarding and everything else, Man United get about £4 million per gate receipt if Old Trafford's full. So if you're getting 50% of that after yeah, the costs have been made, you're getting about £1.5 million. So for someone like a South End or... I don't know, a Blackpool or someone like that, that's going to keep them running for about a year, maybe longer. So surely it's well, yeah. better just to for- take the money than just take the, take the replay. Just If you go out, you go out. You've got your £1.5 million. Say thank you very much. We'll try again next well, year. If you think, say it's 15 quid a ticket, say Man United are at home and they play, I don't know, we'll use Charlton as an example. Sod it, why not? And it's a 20,000 seat because not Man United fans don't want to come watch Charlton. There would be more than that because Man United people will go see Man United regardless. But say it's, tw- it's 20,000, you're paying 15 quid. The gate receipt is going to be, what, 300 grand roughly for that? Mm, about that. It's half of it is 150 grand. That's not bad. Charlton will take that. It's more money they'll get if they were at home or if they drew Torquay. <laughs> you know, if Charlton have, say, what's Old Trafford maximum? Seven? 70-odd thousand? 79,000, just short of 80, so, I think. So if they sold 70,000 seats at 15 quid, they've made a million pounds. Yeah. <laughs> Man United don't have seats for 15 quid. <laughs> no, but I'm saying just as a base cup kind of price, yeah. because I believe the FA are looking into capping tickets for FA Cup games, like the Champions League have. Um, oh, that's new. Okay. So if it is, say, it would probably be more than 15 quid, because I think even Charlton tickets are more expensive than that. But say it is 15 quid, that's about just over a million pounds. Half of that is half a million. That's fine for Charlton. That's going to get you two or three decent footballers in League One. So it's it makes a lot of sense for that. Because I don't agree with the argument that all the big teams should always be drawn at home. I've seen people argue that. That's not one for me. Financially, yeah. I mean, if you're looking at it, it depends how you approach it. I look at it financially, as you said, a side like... So we played Gateshead, but before we played Gateshead on TV, we played Haven at Waterlooville. There's 6,000 in the stadium at about 15 quid each. It'd been quite nice to spread the, the cost, give Haven at Waterlooville the money because that could get them a season. As you said, it keeps them in existence for a year. Char- when Charlie Austin signed for Swindon, sorry to go on a, on a story, but Charlie Austin signed for Swindon from Paul Town in, uh, they were like four divisions from the conference. And Swindon paid like 100 grand for him. Paul Town then went on, I think it was four promotions in a row because 100 grand was just pumping into their club. They got up to the Conference South just off 100 grand. And then from being in that league, they were furthering themselves in the FA Cup and sadly have now dropped back down to the league below the Conference South. But they managed to knock off so many promotions with so little money. It shows that actually a small fee for what the bigger teams and even the championship teams see as a little bit of money. For a side in the conference and below, it makes so much difference. And I think that's why it has to be valued financially. I think you can argue that it's even the case in the championship because look how Brentford have done their business. 
they've essentially done something similar just by selling their players. They, they've eventually ended up in the Premier League as a result while turning over being profitable and, and achieving promotion through it. So, yeah, I can't say... Blame Brentford... One... Sorry, go on. Sorry, just, just to say, Brentford is a model that I think people need to look at and copy because Charlton fans... Again, I'm going back to Charlton because it's my club, but Charlton fans have seemed to have this problem seeing that everyone's a selling club. Your idea is you get a youth player, he comes through your academy, he's fantastic, you sell him on for money, you reinvest that money in your club. Brentford do, have done that superbly. They're very good at it. The Scottish, when you look at the, the problems that Rangers had in, in Scotland, was when they was, them and Celtic were on par, Celtic were selling their best players on for profit and were selling and were buying another player for, say, a quarter of that, where Rangers tried to go, we're going to spend all of the money, blah, blah, blah. It's about reinvesting smart, like Brentford are doing, selling on, who did they have before Ivan Tony? Sold on Mope for 15 million, brought Tony in for five. And before that, it was Berama. Ollie Watkins was Ollie there, Watkins Ben Rama. Well, I think there was someone before them as well. Yeah, uh, Brentford, oh, Brentford was, have been doing it for years. Is it Scott Hogan? Yeah. I think it was, went yeah, to yeah. Aston went to Villa, Villa for a small fortune yeah, yeah. and yeah. got them promoted and then poor fella no, never really got a Birmingham. crack in the Premier League. Yeah, he's now at Birmingham. But oh, it's, <laughs> uh, it's so good that it works. But anyway, I make your point that you were going to make, sorry. I just wanted to quick ask a question because obviously on this podcast, we've tried to avoid a lot of the topics that the mainstream have brought up. However, mm. as a match day going fan, I wanted your opinion because obviously COVID has hit really hard again in the UK. The government are reintroducing restrictions as it's getting worse. We're now getting to a point where You've got to prove that you're vaccinated to be able to go into football grounds uh, or you've got to have a negative test or anything. Are you in favour of, because of the high number of COVID cases, are you in favour of them shutting the leagues down for a couple of weeks to try and get the numbers down? Or would you rather they shut the stands down again so that fans don't come in and we go back to what we had during the start of the pandemic where there was behind closed door games, essentially. So I think there's a happy medium. I want to stay as it is, but I understand that there's a chance it's not. I'm realistic enough. I'm not an idiot. I know there's a chance that we're going to need to go into some form of, I won't get into the lockdown conversation, but I think they will clamp down on football. They've already outlined it by saying that don't go to football, do something that's important to you which to me was a bit of an insult. I know it's taking it on a bit of a tangent, but to me that was an insult because football's important to me. I would prefer they, for instance, do you remember when they started to open football stadiums again for the very first time and they kind of said, right, season ticket seasons only or 35% of your stadium or whatever they choose to do. I think there needs to be football fans in the stadium because the football without fans was boring <laughs> it was weird it was a different viewing experience I think the players all said that I know it sh they shouldn't necessarily think this way but it wasn't the same without the fans they didn't get up for the games as much etc so I think the fans need to be there I'm not necessarily against the idea as I said of 
limiting capacity. Maybe, as, as I said, season ticket only, 35% of your stadium. I know some teams have already done it. Lincoln in League One have said that they're not going to allow an attendance over 10,000. Yeah. So I don't know what their attendance is normally for a match day. But I've been there and I wouldn't say it's much more than 10 anyway, but that's what they're limiting. And there's a few other teams, and I think in League Two, that have said that. So, yeah, I'm not against that. I think, again, again, we're not going to go too much into the politics, but I, I'm not one that's bothered by the idea of having to prove you've got a negative test or prove that you've had your vaccine because I've had my vaccine. I have my proof. I take tests regularly because of my job. So for me, it's not going to be a big problem. So selfishly, I guess I'm not overly bothered, but I do think they need to keep fans in the stadium. I think that one wraps that up quite nicely then. Yeah, so I think that's it for this week's episode. We didn't give a shout out to our sponsors before we started. So let us talk mental health helping with mental health and football, playing games to range charity for Mind. We are in a tournament and we were about to announce a friendly how a game. However, that team's pulled out. So we have a buy into the next round. So we are currently in the National Infinity Cup and we keep an eye out. We're in the round of 16 and the final is being held at a conference ground. And off the top of my head, I can't remember which one it is. So next week I'll find out and let you know. So hopefully we'll get through to the final and be able to play at a decent level stadium. That would be nice. We're also, of course, keep an eye out on her Game 2 movement and have a quite our interview with Victoria. Go back a few weeks. It was fantastic. Uh, and also, Ryan, the one that you're set up with, which is the... Uh, it's gone from my head, so please take over. The Proper Blokes Club. For any guys out there that are suffering mental health issues that don't feel comfortable talking to your doctor, to your spouse, or to your family members, go to www.thepropablokesclub.co.uk there are mental health walks listed on the website for men. You just go out with a bunch of other guys, air your grievances, whatever's getting you down, or even if you want to just forget your problems and go out for just a casual chat with a bunch of blokes. I do it myself on a regular basis, at least twice a month. Half the time afterwards, we end up down the pub, continuing talking about everything that we're talking about. So go to the website and check them out and get everything off your chest, especially with the COVID stuff that's going on. If we're going to end up with more restrictions, it's important that you make the most of the open air and that you do get some exercise because it will make you feel better. Yeah, and their walks are spreading like, well, COVID, sadly, but there are walks (laughs) everywhere you can find yourself one in everywhere. Obviously started in London, but I'm seeing them pop up in Bristol, in Bath, some places I've never heard of are coming up on their Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So get head on over there and follow them. Uh, Ryan's given you the website. Please do it. If you want to speak to us, we are on Facebook, Football Funders Podcast, Twitter, Fball Funders, and our email address is footballfunderspod at gmail.com. Please uh, go over and message us. Uh, we would love to be in contact. If you've got any questions, ask away. And then, of course, if you'd like to be on the show, as Ryan has said before, we're yep. looking for guests. So if you're willing to be a guest uh, or you know someone who you think would be a good addition to the show, let us know. And of course, we'll be more than willing to speak to you. So please head over and do that. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again very soon. Yeah.